Sean McDonald's amazing, if y'all don't know him. He's an incredible artist. Um, so, I believe that. I really do believe he is all we need. And I know we're in Hebrews, and I know we're looking into the scripture, but those two songs, to me, just kind of encapsulated my desire, is that we would turn our eyes to the Lord, and that we would all walk out of here realizing wherever we are, you really are all I need even if you're not really what I want. You are all I need. So I don't know where y'all are, um, but he does. And that statement is true. And so it's just kind of where I wanted our hearts to, to be tuned to and to listen to. And we're going to open up into Hebrew. Thank you all for joining us from wherever you're joining us across the different living rooms and cities. Uh, we're so thrilled to have you all with us here in Atlanta. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're going to be, but before we dive into Hebrews chapter 3, I made a huge mistake last time we gathered together, and there were four awesome scripture verses that I did not read encapsulating Hebrews chapter 2, 
And it dawned on me when I got in my car and I was like, no, those are the four passages. So I've assigned those four passages. They're Deuteronomy 4.30, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, Ecclesiastes 5.1, and Luke 5.1, for those of you that are joining us in cyber world. Um, so if you can't hear the girls read those, that's what they are. But before we read those, um, last time we gathered together, we talked about what was the big word picture for those of you that remember. Do you remember? An anchor, right. So we talked about how in the whole author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jews that do believe in Jesus, but they believe in Jesus plus everything else. They believe in Jesus plus law, plus what they have to do, um, you know, their law in the day. And that's not very far off from where we are right now in our culture in 20th century Protestantism, if that's a word, we add things of Jesus all the time. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to strip away everything that the people have added to the simplicity of the gospel. And he's inviting them to say, listen, Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than what you know. He's better than what you think. He's better than your way. His plans are better. The whole message of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And that's, again, something that I think we all need to hear tonight, that Jesus is better. His plans for you are better than your own. And his finished work is better than anything you could add to him. And if we were really honest, we all know, those of us who have come to faith in Christ, and there may be some of you that haven't yet, and that's okay. But those of us that know and have come to faith and come to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, he can do what he said he can do, I am who he says I am, we get that <coughs> Jesus drew us to him. Okay, so we come to faith by grace, Ephesians 2, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not a, a work of your own. It's a gift. But where we go wrong and where the Hebrews were going wrong was, okay, that's how I begin. But how I maintain and how I live is up to me. And, right, a marathoner is only as good as how they finish. So they can start. And, in fact, if you watch the Kenyans and the people that always win it all, they're amazing. They start, but they are very paced. And they pick up their pace, and they finish well, and they win. And there's a lot of people that start out of the gate. I'm not a runner. The, I mean, the one race I did was like three miles. And I killed myself because I just started really fast. You know, I was just so excited. Well, what happens when you start really fast? You don't finish very well, right? You're given out. So the Hebrews, and I think our culture, starts Christianity really enthusiastically, really well-meaning, really full of passion, and yeah, I want to give my life to God, and yes, and I walked some aisle when I was nine, or I got baptized, or yeah, yeah, like I, I believe it, and it's all kind of hypey. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but that's not what's going to sustain you, much less what's going to let you finish well. And so he, in chapter 3, is going to get into a little bit about finishing well and not just starting well. Um, so in, in recapping, which is Hebrews chapter 2, is actually going to go into Hebrews chapter 3. So 
the four verses that I want y'all to read, I want you to read them pretty, pretty loud, they kind of set the basis for us on listening to the Lord and what do we have to do to listen to the Lord. And one of the last things we said the, the last time we gathered was you cannot listen in and drift away at the same time. So when you're anchored down in the Lord, you are listening up to the Lord. And so these verses kind of give us a little bit of clue as to what we can do to listen a little bit better tonight to what God has for us in Hebrews chapter 3. So whoever has Deuteronomy 4.30, if you'll read that, read that pretty loud. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. So the verb there, besides listen, is to listen, you have to first, starts with an R. You've got to return. Again, I don't know where y'all are coming from, but there are believers that have gone astray. And Hebrews chapter 3 talks about that. And to hear what God has for you, he wants you to return. Return to me. Even in this next few minutes we have together, return to him to hear what he would have to speak to you. So you've got to return to listen, and listening anchors you deeper in the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Listen, people of Israel, the Lord our God is the only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Because it actually put listen as the verb before love. And a lot of people, even people that don't know the Lord, can quote those verses. They can quote John 3.16. They can quote, yeah, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your heart and all your mind. But you can't really do that unless you listen to him. And that's how the first, I mean, that's how chapter 2 started, was pay attention. Remember, fix your eyes, listen. And chapter 3 starts no different. He just uses a little bit of a different word. Um, Ecclesiastes 5.1. Yeah, so that one, where, what's the other verb there besides listen? And guard, right? Guard your steps. Be careful how you come into the house of God. So even on nights of establishment, y'all, I have to be careful that I'm not coming in here to pour out to you as much as I'm coming in to listen to him. I, I have to guard my steps as I come into a place of worship to say, Lord, I'm here to receive from you. I do not have words of life. I know that. He has words of life, and we all need to sit in submission, having our steps very guarded, our minds guarded. I can think about to-do list all day long. I can think about this cute puppy that's waiting for me at home that my husband's getting for a silent auction item. I mean, I can do that, or I can guard my steps. I can come in very focused to say, Lord, I want to listen to you in a place of worship, in a posture of worship tonight. Um, and then Luke 5, 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. So what's the other verb? Did y'all hear the other verb there? What were the people doing? They were gathering. My scripture says they were pressing in on him. They could not get enough. Y'all know the difference, right? And those of you that are married will know the difference between hearing and selectively hearing, right? <laughs> so, so you can listen to someone and just kind of like halfway catch what they're saying, and we do that with our friends too, or we can press in and give full attention and go, okay, yeah, you've got me. 
Jerry Maguire, you've got me at hello. Like, I'm here, I'm in, yes. That's what they were doing. They were pressing in to him to hear from him, not standing on the periphery hoping to catch a word from this Jesus guy. And there's a lot of people that are similar to the Hebrews that are standing on the periphery, not pressing to catch a word from this Jesus guy. And he can speak to you that way because he's always speaking. But he would rather speak directly to you. And to do that, we just need to press in. So the fact that you're here tonight is pressing in. It's just pressing into him. And so I'm just trusting that he's going to speak to you the way he has done me, and he will continue to in Hebrews chapter 3. So Hebrews 2, the, the challenge was to listen up and anchor in. Hebrews 3 is to consider and to steer your heart to believe. That's kind of the two ideas we're going to stick with tonight. To consider, and then we're going to break it down, as you know we do. To consider Jesus and to steer your heart. Remember that boating terminology. He's using boating terminology all throughout the book of Hebrews. And we find it again here in a couple different ways. He uses the word going astray, which is the same as a a wandering boat, a drifting boat. And the idea of steering your heart to believe. So, let's dive in. I'm going to read um, the whole chapter out of the NAS keyword, and then there's a couple of the verses I want to read in the Amplified version, because it's incredible, and the Amplified just takes all the original language, and even some of the Latin, and just breathes life into it. It's, it's really long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing in the Amplified, but a few of the key verses. So, Hebrews chapter 3, Spirit of God, would you illuminate your truth? Verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, just brothers and sisters, Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. I have that circled in red. That is a verb. It is an invitation. It's not an option. Consider Jesus. It's a bit of a command in how it's written, but it's gentle. Consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him whom appointed him, as Moses was also in all of his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be written later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. There's the idea of finishing well. Verse 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me, he's about Moses here. As in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me. And saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart, like a wandering boat. And they did not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brethren, lest there should be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. 
but encourage one another day after day as long as it, as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? All of them. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Lots of weighty ideas here. But we're going to take the two big ones and we're going to look at the word consider. And we're going to think about the idea of steering our heart towards faith and not letting it go astray. So consider. When y'all think of the word consider, is there any other word kind of synonym that pops into your mind? Okay, sure. To think on, to contemplate, yes. Anything else? Okay, so a little, a little deeper thinking, right? Consider maybe is a weighing of options. So you're, maybe you're heavily, intently thinking about something. For sure. Anything else? Okay, so just keeping it in the forefront of your mind. Yeah, being mindful. Very true. Listen to... The original meaning, so if you have a concordance in the Strong's, it's 2657 is the number. Here's what it means. To observe fully, to perceive clearly, to intently think upon, to put your mind down into. Interesting. The Latin word is from the word star, where they get the word consider. That actually means to gaze upon the stars, to consider the stars, like an astronomer would use a like narrowing down, picking out a star and just getting fascinated with it, almost obsessed with it. And you're just, you're gazing at it, right? Stargazing. That's where the idea of consider comes from. Now put Jesus after that word. Observe him fully, perceive him clearly, intently think upon him, put your mind down into him, gaze deeply up at him. That's the way Hebrews 3 is starting. That's our invitation. That's our challenge because it is a challenge, right? It's very difficult to live in a culture where there are lots of options to consider. There are lots of stars to look at. There are lots of bright, shiny, pretty things that kind of take our attention one way or the other. And so he's using this, you know, a couple thousand years ago, but it's very, very relevant because the invitation still stands. Consider Jesus. Consider him. Just consider him in your options, and you will realize he is the only option. He is the only resort. He's not the last one. He's it. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Did y'all know that one of the names of Jesus is actually called the Morning Star? Capital M, capital S. It's used in the scripture one time. And then even the day that he was born, right around what we would call as Christmas time in Luke chapter 2, what happened in the sky 
there was a star, a north star that shone brighter than any of the other stars. And the wise men intently gazed upon that star, which led them to a baby in a manger. All of that was very real, really happened. But they weren't just words. Jesus' name was the morning star. And the north star, north, right? What direction is north point? It's always up. That's all intentionally written the way it is in the scripture for a reason. It's like I can't help to think about everything in life as a veil revealing something deeper, like the movie Matrix, right? The whole movie of Matrix was all about the life that was behind the life. It was behind, it was underneath everything. That is what the Christian life is. It infuses everything. It's behind what we touch and what we see and what we feel. There's a life that's deeper. And so I just, I love that picture that the actual word of consider was similar to that of, of stargazing. And God's going, yeah, from, I set my son in a fleshly form as a baby. I've been inviting you to consider him, to stargaze upon him. And I use a North Star to guide people to him. And if you will only look up, Sarah, if you will only consider me, to intently think upon me, you will know rest. You will know fulfillment. You will know the peace and the joy. There's not one person that I can name that would automatically sign up for a life of unrest, for a life of just anxiety, for a life of just zero joy. Nobody wants that. Everybody would want an epic adventure a love romance of some sort, um, joy, happiness, whatever the word is you want to use for that, peace. We, we, these, are, these are things we would want. And he's going, look, I know that. I created you with a hole for that, a void of that, because I'm the only one that can give you that. And if you will just consider me, not weigh me as an option, but consider me in the way that it really means, to perceive me clearly, to look at me like through a telescope at a star and don't quit until you get all the nuances of that star. You're going to get the life that you really want. You're going to know the fruit of the Spirit, the joy, the peace, the patience, the adventure. Noah's on an easy road. But who wants easy? Easy is never adventurous. Easy comes with zero risk. And if we're all really honest, we want the adventures we see in the fairy tale. Even Hollywood, all of that's a matrix, right? Down to the villain and the hero, the lover and the, the madam and the girl and the guy, all of it, all of it is a veil revealing, I've designed you to want me. Like, I came up with all this. He's the builder of all this, the architect. Why do we admire the houses more than we do the architects and the builders, the one that didn't just construct it, they invented it. They came up with that 13,000 square foot mansion, right? They came up with different plans that we're all going, this is amazing. But what's more amazing is the brain of the man or the woman 
that designed that place that didn't exist. They, they built it out of nothing, which is great, but they burned their mind. Y'all, God brought us out of nothing, the world out of nothing. He is the builder of all things, as it goes on to say. And yet we can get lost in worship, even, what he's built versus the builder. So consider fixing your thoughts on Jesus. I just wrote down it's this undivided attention. Um, what you think will determine your decisions. Your beliefs will eventually dictate your behavior. So I don't know what you're considering in terms of this definition. I don't know what you're observing fully. I don't know what you're perceiving clearly right now. I don't know what you're intently thinking on. But whatever it is, it will make its way out. Whatever's in your inner heart will make its way out into your life somehow, some way. In a decision, maybe in not making a certain decision, in a, in a move, in taking a job or not taking a job, all of that, though it seems external, is all stemming from what's inside and what we're considering and what we're thinking on. What are, we, what are you fixing your thoughts on? Have you ever asked yourself that? If you were to take a log of your thoughts in just one day, if y'all do this like with a budget, right? We're supposed to have budgets, but if, if we do... You have categories, right? So you have your rent, your utilities, your shopping, your blah, blah, whatever, you know. And you take a log, probably, hopefully, at some point in the month or the week or however you do it to see where your money's going. Try that with your thoughts. And lay down in bed at night and go, okay, where were my thoughts today? Where did I spend the majority of my thoughts? Was it considering Jesus, the way that this is saying, not just on the periphery thinking he's a, he's a possibility, but observing him fully, perceiving him clearly, intently thinking upon him, gazing on him like a North Star, or were your thoughts kind of in and out of that? Maybe you bounced into that when you got a call that you didn't expect to get and that took you to your knees, and now you're thinking about God. Okay, it's not terrible. That's not really sustainable either. Maybe he does. Maybe he pervades your thoughts, and you realize that when you lay down and you go, whoa, I see myself growing. I don't see myself thinking about me the way that I used to think about me. In fact, I don't see myself thinking about me at all. That's a huge revealing, freeing thought to come to, to say oh, you don't think about you. That's beautiful. Maybe that's all you think about. And I've had seasons of both. And I'll tell you, one gives death and one gives life. In the seasons where all I can think about is me, whether how I, how I don't measure up or how I'm too much or I'm too little or whatever the thoughts are, y'all, that just gives death. It gives no life to anyone, much less me. And then there are seasons that could be instigated by a trauma or a pain. That's usually what it is for people that sin. Um, and early in my walk with him, that's kind of what happened. But those seasons, though externally, it was some rough seas. Internally, it was the calmest I'd ever been. 
because I was thinking on Jesus. I wasn't thinking about what you thought of me. I wasn't thinking about what he or she said. I mean, let's just amen how tiring that is. <laughs> Unbelievable. I don't even know who the they are, but we all listen to them. We, listen, we engage them. We think about them, and I don't even know who they are. But he wants to graduate us to considering him and just him. So take a log, just as an activity, just see, and kind of assess it and go, okay, where are my thoughts? Because that will show where your decisions lie, your steps, your decisions to move in or not move in with so-and-so, to take a job. All of that will stem from what's inside and what you're considering. So I just wrote down a few things, and we're going to read a couple verses that are the benefits of considering Jesus. There are tons of consequences for not. And he goes into a few of those. But I want to talk about the positive. I want to talk about what are the benefits of considering Jesus. And so the first thing, if Tiffany will read Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28. Um, we're just going to go through this list pretty quickly. There's five things. And it's a plethora. There's probably many more. But these are just the five I came up with with a verse of benefits of considering him. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Yes. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So come to me, consider me. What's the benefit? Rest. Rest. Who does not want rest? And I just wrote down rest and peace are synonymous. So considering Jesus can actually supernaturally give you peace in your circumstance. And nothing around you may ever change. I can't explain that. But it's called supernatural living. Everything around you may stay the same. But you consider him, you think on him, what he is, who he is, what he can do what he's been doing, what he's doing right now, what he's promised to do, and you will have peace and rest in your circumstances. And it will give you life, not suck the life out of you. The next one, Meg, will you read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So consider Jesus. Trust in Jesus with all your heart. These are all synonyms for each other, just said different ways throughout Scripture. So I'm trying to give you lots of different ways in the Bible that it says this. Trust and consider. Same thing. What's the benefit? Y'all hear it? Totally. So yeah, circumstances, they may stink. They may not change. I don't know. But let me, tr let me just give you a promise. It's not my own. It's what he says. If you trust in me, Sarah, if you consider me, if you look unto me, what I would do, who I am, who I say you are, and you acknowledge me and not your own understanding. So don't mix considering Jesus plus what you understand. Jettison that. Don't, don't consider what you understand. Then I promise I will make your path straight. Praise God it isn't up to us to figure out our path. It's been a long time trying to do that, and it got me nowhere. It was like a dog chasing his tail, just in a circle. And it's, it's all crooked and confusing and unclear. 
when we try to mix our understanding and our logic and the way we deduce things and this is what to do this and cause and effect, yeah, I'm praying too. Who cares? Because he said, you got to trust with me, in me with how much of your heart? And what does that leave? Zero. So it's all of your heart or none. You cannot consider Jesus with this definition in that kind of way with that much trust and live by your own understanding. It's oil and water. And yet all of us would say, I want my past to be straight. I want to know what to do. I want a life that ends well. I want to, to find myself in a destination that's rewarding, whatever that is for you. No one's going to sign up to have a life of hell on earth, okay? You're not going to sign up for that. That's a lot of people's stories. And they look over their shoulder and they go, how in the world did I get here? Well, it started a long time ago when that person mixed considering Jesus with their own understanding, with them. Or another way said, yeah, I trust Jesus and blah, 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 fill in the blank. Christianity is Jesus plus nothing. It's truly, Christianity is Jesus plus nothing. And if there's anything that you want to add in there, if there's any something you want to add, the only thing that would be applicable to add would be trust, faith. Because at some point, there's got to be an agreement with God through the act of faith that he is who he says he is. So if we have a role, okay, if we have a verb, if we have a part to play, that's it. It's to believe. It's to fully trust in. And that's it. That's walking with God. That's Christianity. It is not, and it's a big statement, but it is not going to church. Who cares? There are a ton of people that go to church that do not trust in Jesus at all. Am I for the church? Absolutely. Do I believe that God has risen up the church? Absolutely. I love my church. I'm under the support of my pastor. I get that, yes. But does that define Christianity? No. Service, doing, coming to establish her, getting your life right, however you want to phrase it, these are all additions we try to add to a finished work. That Jesus said, I did it. I finished it. And the only thing because we all do want something to do. That's just what we're born to do. The only thing I want from you, Sarah, is for you to believe that I want nothing from you. The only thing, Sarah, is your heavenly father I want from you is for you to believe that I don't want anything from you. Do you all catch that? The day that you wake up and realize God does not want anything from you, you will know freedom like you've never known. He wants to give something to you. He does not want to take something from you. His son took it all. And all we get to do is consider him, think on him, worship him, get familiar with him in a reverent way. Become best friends with him. Have dates with him. 
just like you would do with someone you love. Hang out with him. Look at him. You know, read about him. What did he say? Who cares what she said? Who cares what they think? What did he say? That kind of thing. And it will produce the life, though it will all look different for every single one of us in here, that we all want. Because his word promises that. So your, your paths will be straight. Your paths will be, will be straight from crooked. Considering Jesus comes with the benefit of animating you with hope. He can animate you like a cartoon. He can lift you. He can make you careless. He can give you supernatural hope when you consider him, when you believe in him. Katie, would you read Romans 15, 13? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, so one more time, y'all. This is so good. Romans 15, 13 gives us a condition. See if you can hear the condition to get hope. So what's the condition? You got to trust. You got to trust in him. That's all. That's all you have to do. You don't have to work for him. You don't have to change. You don't have to necessarily clean up your life. He will do all that for you. But the one thing he asks us to do is the one thing we don't do. That's kind of crazy, right? As a parent, and I'm not a parent yet, I am of fur children. But if you think about it from the, the mindset of a parent, if the one thing your child doesn't do is the only thing you've asked her to do, then does it really matter what else she does? None of it matters. Because the one thing you've asked from her, trust me, trust me as your good dad. Would you just trust me? We don't do that. But I go to church, but I pray. You know, I've got my group. I go to this. I do this. I give. And he's going, just consider me. Just think on me. Just believe me. Just do that. Give your heart fully to me. Then go and do whatever you want to do. Don't get the order reversed. So many, so many people, y'all, find it easy to do as they withhold their heart. They hold on to their heart, man. I'm not giving my heart all the way over to him. I don't know if he's trustworthy. I'm not going to give him my relationship with my boyfriend. His ways seem archaic. Everyone else is doing it this way. I'm not going to give him fully permission to take my heart, to take my life and do with it what he would do. Right? It's the old hymn. Take my life and let it be consecrated unto thee. But I'll give, and I'll pray, and I'll support missionaries, and I'll think good things about Jesus, and I'll believe some of that. But I'm not giving my heart over. And that's the one thing he wants from you, to give you everything. But we've got to give him everything in our heart to get the everything he wants to give. It's this marriage. 
you know, and, and even in a marriage, it doesn't work if one person doesn't give. It doesn't work. You've you got to come in bare. You've got to come in naked. You've got to come in going, you have all of me, and I'm going to get all of you. I don't get the permission to hold parts back. And if I do, I miss out on the intimacy that I really want, right? Same thing with the Lord. Hello, picture again. Everything on earth, every, every relationship that's God-centered, marriage-driven, it's a picture of us in our, in our walk with the Lord. And I can't withhold from the one who, hello, built my heart. He built it. He was the architect of Sarah Ott, Deaton. Like, what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withhold the, the plans of my heart to the architect who drew the plan before I ever drew my first breath? That's insane. He is so worthy of our trust. And his hands are good to place your life into, to place your heart into. Um, so I'll read this one because it goes right along with that. Zephaniah 317, it says, The Lord is in your midst. He's a victorious warrior fighting for you. He will exalt over you with joy, and he will quiet you in his love he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy considering Jesus comes with the benefit of quieting the confusion in your heart he quiets the confusion doesn't always answer it let me say that but he quiets your heart and I love having the seasons where my heart is quieted I may not have all the answers, but I know he's got my heart, and that's enough, and it quiets me. And the last one, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, the benefits of considering Jesus, he fixes your confidence in the midst of fluctuating opinion. Let me read this verse. 3, 4, very simple, but very profound. In such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from us, but our full adequacy is from God who made us adequate through his new covenant. Y'all realize we live in a place and a culture that screams at us that we're not adequate and the opinions around us are constantly fluctuating nothing is constant and to now I mean truth even right truth is relative truth is what you want it to be it's like wait talk about an anchor everyone's pulling their anchors out and when you pull your anchors out on Lake Lanier and nobody has their anchor in what happens you've got a thousand boats out there you've got collisions going everywhere this thought and this person and this opinion and this political thing and this, it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. What is constant? What is true? God, fix me. What is confidence? What can I be confident in? Because it sure isn't in here. Consider Jesus. Look to him. And you will have confidence in the midst of everything that seems to shift and change. He will be that anchor, right? He will root you. He will ground you in 
seasons and in times where it's like you're on a, a wavy sea. And the anchor, y'all realize, doesn't make the waves go away. I mean, the waves still come, fluctuations still come, craziness still happens, hormones still happen. <laughs> but the anchor keeps your boat from fluctuating on the waves. It keeps the boat sturdy. It may rock, may turn, but it's anchored into something that has not connected to the water. The, the anchor isn't anchored in the water. Right? It's anchored in the bottom of the ocean that doesn't move. It's solidified. It's concrete. That's what considering Jesus does. It makes everything you know and believe concrete in a world of sand, in a world where everything shifts, everything changes, everything can go. Well, your truth, sure, my truth, everything's just great, which is not at all true. And if you ever ask people how it's working out for them, it's not working out really well. Next, this is in the voice translation. It's a really cool translation. The key is that your request be anchored by your single-minded commitment to God. Those who depend only on their own judgments or that of another are like lost boats on a sea, carried away by any and every wave, picked up by the wind, and crashed into a rock. Those adrift through life on their own wisdom shouldn't assume that the Lord will rescue or bring them anything. The splinter of divided loyalty will shatter your compass and leave you dizzy and confused. That's amazing. Considering Jesus is a compass. It points north, it points up all the time. Jesus said, I never change. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today. He will be the same 10 years from now. He'll be the same when I'm 93, if I'm still alive. He will be the same. He will be constant. He will be faithful. He will be trustworthy. He will be good. He will be risky. But he'll be the same. Just like he was the same to Moses, which is mentioned in Hebrews 3, just like he was the same to Aaron, he is that God. Like we talk to the God of Moses. And the Hebrews were idolizing Moses because Moses talked to God. But y'all realize we talk to God and God talks to us. It wasn't just a Moses-God thing. And so in chapter 3, even the writer differentiates, hey, Jesus is better than Moses Moses' face, he, he, yeah, he glowed. He got the law. God the Father passed by him, his back. So he, he had some special perks. But Jesus, who can indwell you, crazy, is better than Moses. And Moses was a god to the Hebrews. He was the closest thing to God, okay, literally. I mean, he, his face shone for two weeks. They had to put a veil over his face because his face was radiating from meeting with God. Yeah, I would, I would elevate him too, for sure. But that's the power of the language in Hebrews chapter 3. Because the author is going, y'all think that's good? Jesus is better. 
and he can indwell you and you can radiate you can glow you can have face to face about the law it's about grace it's about a relationship it's about a life and it's about freedom with the law and Moses y'all there came a lot of rules and y'all remember there was times the people hated Moses <laughs> They wanted to go back, like, forget this. Like, we'd rather go be with Pharaoh. Like, this is lame. And the author is saying, Jesus is better. He doesn't come with law. He fulfilled it. He comes with grace. He comes with a new covenant. Not a reformed one of the old, a new one. So powerful. So moving on. We're, we're in verse 1, by the way. That's all verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 3. We will maybe be in Hebrews chapter 3 for a little, little while. Um, consider Jesus, and then it goes into Moses. It calls Jesus two words. I don't want to overlook this. And the first time I read it, I did overlook it. But I went back, and there's some really, really cool things. One in particular I want to land on. It says, consider Jesus, it gives him two names, as the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Y'all, an apostle, simply put, was a messenger. Moses was an apostle to the people that day. Uh, there's a church in Atlanta called Church of the Apostles, right? Church of the Messengers. It's, it's just a messenger. It's a, it's a supreme messenger, okay? But basically put, an apostle is one who brings God to the people. He brings God to the people. But a high priest, if y'all know anything about the Catholic Church, what does a priest do? Okay, so a priest intercedes or mediates between you and God. And the New Testament says that every single one of us in here are a priesthood. We don't have to go to a priest because we are one. Because Jesus is what kind of priest? He's the highest priest. So I wrote down, okay, wait, Jesus is the apostle and he brings God to me. But as the high priest, he brings me to God. Jesus brings me to God and brings God to me. He is the apostle and the priest. And he's to be considered as both. Moses wasn't both. Y'all know who, who was Moses' sidekick? Aaron. He had to have Aaron with him all the time. Aaron was like the high priest with Moses as the apostle. They, they were a tag team. Jesus has no sidekicks. He has no tag teams. He's it. He's both. He brings God to us. He is God. He came down to earth in flesh as God to bring us to God. It's, it's amazing. And I, I, I was just going to overlook that in my study this morning, and I was like, wait, no, that's huge. Because if I consider that Jesus is the one who brings God to me, and I get to benefit from Jesus taking me to God, again, there's nothing I have to do. It's all him. And I just get to think on him. And I get to have this face-to-face -face interaction with God the Father through Jesus the Son. Wow. Um, Moses, y'all heard me say this in Hebrews when we first started, actually, in chapter 10. Moses, it says, was a shadow. He was a testimony. 
of the things that were to come. It says that down in verse 5, that Moses was faithful, yes, but he was just a testimony of the things that were to be spoken later. He was a mirage. He was a picture and a partial one at that for Jesus that was to come. Everything is a shadow. And God gave me this, this um, example in my heart when I was thinking about this. And it was like this vision in my mind of an art gallery. I do not go to art galleries much, but I, I do admire them. Like the High Museum of Art here in Atlanta. The Getty Museum in L.A. If you were standing in these remarkable things and you were looking at these pieces of art and just taking them in, and the artist, let's say... Chihuly, who's the blown glass artist, or some, you know, Georgia O'Keeffe who did flowers, or whatever. Let's say the artist was standing right next to you. You didn't recognize them, but they were standing right next to you, and you were just in awe of the artwork. And all of a sudden, you kind of came to and realized, okay, I, I think that's the celebrity. I think that's the person who made this. I would rather talk to you about how you did that, how you made that, and get more awe of that because you're going to tell me more things I could ever imagine than just staring at a great piece of art on the wall. That's the difference between worshiping a shadow and worshiping the real thing, right? It's worshiping a shadow, and right here, standing here is, yeah, that's what I created that. Like, it came out of me. You think that's amazing? I got so much more to come out of me. God has got so much more to give us. He's, he's limitless. You can't plumb the depths of him. And yet we kind of worship the shadows at times and not the, the tree itself or that we worship the artwork and not the artist. Um, so moving on quickly here as we come close into the end. It says, uh, he was faithful. Um, <coughs> And he will be faithful to us in verse 6, holding fast, if we hold fast to the confidence and the boast of our hope until the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so I looked up the word harden. There's three different things. Stiffen, darken. If God is speaking to you in some realm of your life, don't stiffen your heart. Don't dry up your heart. Don't darken your heart. And he goes on to, to kind of explain that's what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. And y'all remember the miracles they saw, right? I mean, they had food, manna, bread, falling from clouds every day to provide for their needs. They saw the ocean, the sea, part in their, in their eyes and walked on the dry ground that we would put an anchor in. It was unbelievable. I mean, literal, real miracles. And we look at them like they're nuts. Like, how could you complain? You got to see God in a cloud. Like, he, he would literally have a cloud over the tabernacle. Remember when we, when we looked at the tabernacle last year? God would descend in a cloud and then a fire, a pillar of fire over the tabernacle with millions of people in the wilderness. And, and we would look at them like you are absolutely insane if the next day you would doubt the God you just saw. 
but we do. Y'all, I've had Red Seas part in my life. I've had moments where I can't explain how I survived. I've had moments where I can't explain how we got a check. I can't explain a peace that I have in, in the midst of a circumstance, like losing a child, which happened to me this summer. I can't explain that. Those are miracles. They are Red Seas. They are manna. We see God working too, and they had 40 years of track record, and they did not enter the promised land because of one thing. One thing. What was it? What, what did they not do? The last verse. They did not enter because of unbelief. They still didn't believe. They, they, they did thank God. They did worship him. They did see him move, and they, they would clap their hands and kind of be in awe. But that's, again, the, the idea of starting your race a little too quickly that you can't sustain because the belief they had for him was tied to what he did, not to who he was. And so when he wouldn't do things, or in our day and time, God would allow things to happen that we can't explain, and he does, and I don't understand. We retract our faith, and we pull back, and we go, well, wait, you're not trustworthy, because you did that, or you didn't do that. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be good. You're supposed to not let that happen. So what do we do? We backpedal, and we retract our faith and go, no, 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 no. No, it's supposed to go like this, and then I'll believe you. But the belief that the Hebrews author is talking about here in chapter 3 is a permeating, heart-deep belief in a character, not in a circumstance, not in what a God can do, but who he is. And that takes journey. That takes tears. That takes getting to know the face of this God in here. That takes asking big questions. That takes face-to-face -face contact with him, the greatest way in the scripture and, and through worship. And that's why we start Establish Her with songs. It takes all that. Because that kind of faith, that kind of considering of Jesus, that's what carries you. That's what sustains you. And frankly, y'all, that's what lets you finish well. That's the only faith that counts. Now, we can get kind of scary when we talk about ending well, and if that's the only faith that counts, an entire nation of people did not enter Canaan, which again was a word picture. It was a real place. It is on a map. I could show it to you. And they literally died. There was millions of bodies in the wilderness that did not go in because of unbelief. And they worship God. There, there were times in the Old Testament, you can read them in Exodus, where they, they worship God. They thanked him. Shouldn't that be enough? Like, they should have gotten to go. And God said, no, no, no. Mm -mm, that's not how it works. Because, you see, you look at the outward appearance for Samuel. But I look at the inner heart. I know the depth of your heart. And if you really. At the end of the day, y'all, when the game is over, 
He is the only one who really knows. If you believe him, if you steered your heart to faith, doesn't mean you have all the answers, doesn't mean your life was easy, but at the bottom of your joy, at the bottom of your heart, at the bottom of it all, strip it all away. I may not understand you totally, but I believe you for what you did for what you can do, for what you are doing, for what you've done to me and for me. I do believe you for all that. But even more, I believe you are God. I believe you. I believe your character. I believe you are who you say you are. He is the only one who can match that. Men let us down. We let down each other. We're fallible. We're imperfect. We're not always a yes is our yes and our no is our no. We can be very hypocritical, unfortunately, but it is the truth. Jesus is not. He is never hypocritical. He is never duplicitous. He is always who he says he was. And I find such anchoring in that. And that's all he's saying. That's the faith that counts. That's the only one. Not the faith on Sunday when you can throw your hands and worship and thank God all day long and Monday comes around and you're in a hellhole and your life is falling apart. That isn't, it doesn't work. He's going, I want you to consider me. I want you to get deep in your soul. Deuteronomy 6, right? And know love from me and with me in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. I want to take over. And give to you more than you could ever imagine. But there's this elephant in the room in chapter 3 of a possibility to enter rest and a possibility to miss it. It's all available to everybody. There's no, no favorites. There's no selected few. Rest is available. Promised land, Canaan, hope, the best is yet to come mentality. That's available. But there's a crossroads. And there's some that will enter. And there's some that will miss. And it will not be because of what they have done. It will be because of the one thing they never did. They didn't believe in the core of who they are. Yet Jesus is He's life. He isn't religion. He isn't principles. It's a person. And as sure as I'm sitting here, he's here. And he's real. And he's God. And he's mine. And I'm his. And I don't get all the other stuff necessarily. I don't have to. But the one thing I need to get, I got. And that's what carries you well. That's what you finish well with. So do not harden your heart. And I remember these are all the things I did in the wilderness. They all are precursors to unbelief. I mean, they complained, they murmured, they rebelled. And then they did not do the one thing he wanted them to do, which was believe. And so I wrote down that the core essence of every sin is unbelief. Every single one. Lying, adultery, stealing, Murder, the big ones, the private ones that aren't so big but that are massive because they're hidden in their inside. Every single one of them. The core essence 
of all of that, the big word, sin, is unbelief. At some level, you don't believe God. I don't believe God has the best in mind for marriage, so I'm going to move in with my boyfriend and try it out on my own because if I don't test drive the car, it may not work. I don't believe, ultimately, I do not believe that that's, that's what I should do, even though it says that in here. It says that sex and relationship and intimacy and oneness and beauty and procreation and all that in amazing excitement is to be in the context of marriage, but uh, mm -mm, I don't believe that, so I'm going to try it this way. And then when my life falls apart, I'm going to come back to where I started. There's so many levels of belief. And sin, which is this big, huge church word, can really be boiled down to just unbelief. That's really what it is. And so as you take a log of your thought life, take a log of your belief, deep, deep down your heart, is there something that you really don't believe about God. And it's okay if there is something. Wrestle it. Get, get into the scripture. Talk to somebody about it. Because faith is vital to finish well. And people start well. They mean well. But it doesn't count. The finishing by faith, right? In Hebrews in chapter 12, it talks about running the, the race that's set before you, casting off what entangles you. Unbelief's like a net. It is trapping. It entangles you, and it has way many faces, tons of different faces. But it's unbelief underneath it all. Unbelief leads to fear. Unbelief leads to doubt. Unbelief leads to you know, drunkenness, unbelief. It's all of it. Because at some level, there is something that God isn't going to make good on. My way's better than his way. His way's archaic, and it's old, and it's lame, and it's for some people, but my way's ultimately belief. So it's like a net. And keeping with this boating terminology in Hebrews 12, the author says, cast off the net. What easily entangles you, and run the race set before you, and finish well. Because the author and the finisher of your faith, he ran the race ahead of you to secure your finish. It's secured. Like, there's nothing I have to do. I just have to believe that he finished it and that he's enough and he's life and my belief in him is the apex of it all. Do not harden your heart. So what's your history with God? That was a question I wrote down. The Israelites had 40 years of history. What's your history like? Is it just beginning? It's beautiful if it is. Is it old? And as we talked about last time, just so familiar that it's lost its edge. It's not new anymore. What is your history with God like? Because your history with God and how he's talked to you and how you've relied upon him or haven't or how you've wrestled with him, all of that is an indicator to the future with God. The, the, the history of God is, is what we build the future with God on. 
And so I think even in this room tonight, and I love it about Establish Her and in, all over in different cities, that there are people across every walk of life and every part of that journey with God that come. They're at mile one, and it's tough. Or they're at mile one, and they, it's all downhill, and they haven't hit a hill yet. Or, man, I've been journeying with the Lord, and I've got a rhythm, and I've got a pace. And their hills still come. I'm in the same race you're in. But I believe him. And I'm running and I'm finishing well. And to get to team up and do life with women across every lane of that race is a privilege. The goal is to believe in the depths and to finish well what he has for you. So take an inventory of your history because it'll tell you a lot about your future. Um, the last thing I kind of want to touch on is just giving you a definition of unbelief. It's, I could literally talk on this for hours. I was in Birmingham 10 years ago when God's heart, in a way I cannot even explain, this definition of unbelief that came from epistio, which is the Greek word, and it means unfaithfulness. Unbelief is unfaithfulness, which it sounds so lame, and it sounds so elementary, but y'all literally, what is it called when a man cheats on a woman? It's called unfaithfulness, right? There's a reason why. Unbelief is committing adultery on God. It's crawling in the bed with the enemy. It's sleeping with the enemy. Every time you entertain unbelief, it is crawling in bed with an enemy. And I, I can remember the coffee shop I was in when I got this, I mean, I was battling some serious levels of unbelief in my life in that season. And I just got this image of crawling in bed with my worst enemy, the worst person I could ever think of, someone I would never even want to be in the same room with, much less a bed with. Satan would be up on that list. He's real. And God's going, Sarah, when you entertain that unbelief of my character, you're crawling in bed with the one who wants to slit your throat. He does not have good for you. He wants to hurt you. I, I don't want to hurt you. And the enemy, he's been doing it since the very beginning. He's been doing it to Eve. He's been doing it to us ever since. He twists the truth. Pleasure never dangles the hook when it shows you the bait, right? Pleasure and sin, they, they show you the bait. They don't show you the hook. They don't show you that I'm, I'm going to ring you in and I'm going to slit you apart. Sin is pleasurable for about that long, and all of a sudden it eats you alive. But it doesn't show you that. It's like, it's like the fish, right? The fish would never go to a plain hook, be a stupid fish. <laughs> What's it going to go to? A worm or a bait, something that it, it wants to eat, something that's good. Fisherman knows that. So he's going to load up that hook with all kinds of yummy stuff because he's going to get that fish hooked. That's what sin does. That's what unbelief does. It hooks you in. It entices you with pleasure. And it promises what it never can deliver, by the way. 
but it entices you and it hooks you and slits you in the process. And all the while he's saying, this is what God's going to do to you. God, you want to do it God's way? Yeah, well, good luck with that because that's, that's going to be death for you. I'm going to offer you life. I'm going to offer you pleasure. That's what he said to Eve. She only took one bite. You know, she didn't even eat the whole apple. It only took one bite. It takes one hook. It takes one entertainment of God. Man, forget you. You're not, you're not good. And you're in the bed with the enemy. And it's a scary place to be. And in that instant, in that coffee shop for me, over very different issues, but the principle was the same. I really believe the Lord began a process for me of setting me free totally from unbelief and gave me that vision to say, Sarah, I want to protect you from what wants to hurt you. And if you will rest your weight on me, if you will believe me with all you are, you will see that I promise and I make good on it every time. I am not going to hook you. It is not a game of bait and switch with God. What you see is what you get with him. It is not the case with the enemy. What you see with him may or may not be what you get. And I think the, the heaviness I felt in that moment, I felt it again today as I was praying and preparing because there are so many women being led astray by unbelief unbelieving that God is good, that he's a provider, that he's enough, that he is life. And so they seek fulfillment and answers in whatever else and every other thing. And it's just, they're just getting hooked. And I want to see that change. This one commentator, Andrew Murray, said, on one side there sits a sorceress with a smile on her lips, a lie on her tongue, and a knife in her sleeve. Do not go near her house. The dead are the only ones left there. On the other side, there stands Jesus Christ, the one who died and gave his life for you to redeem your soul from her deceit and violence. The one whom said, my soul has escaped as a bird out of a snare. Put your life in that of the Redeemer, not in that of the Stealer. Because he goes on and he actually uses that word of encouraging each other in verse 13, day after day, encourage one another to believe God so that you don't have your heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Powerful. So, so powerful. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to our confession from the beginning, firm until the end. And he repeats it again in the next couple verses. Do not harden your heart. Hear his voice. He can author that belief and set you free from unbelief so that we could enter into his rest. 
um, I just want to end and play a song um, and just kind of let this song, it's called Be Still, but it's just a really unique version of a song that I hadn't heard in a long time. Um, and just let the Lord reveal to you where you are in the belief journey. It's a journey. It's not an overnight thing. And let him reveal to you and let him bring about conviction where needed, encouragement where needed. Um, he's so kind. He's so gentle. He's not mean. He's very tender. Um, because his heart and my heart, even as we lead up to the Establish Her Retreat in North Carolina in just a couple months, it is all about entering rest. From the very beginning, even from the garden, the enemy was whispering, but God was also whispering. I would even venture to say he was screaming. Rest. I want you to enter my rest. I want you to enter rest through your belief of me. I will work your life out. If I can work your salvation out, I can work your life out. I will work it out. Just believe me and rest in me. You don't want to miss that rest. And then it's kind of an interesting play on words because you either enter in the rest of God or you miss out on the rest of God. You get it? You enter into the rest of God or you miss out on the rest of God, on the rest that he has to give you, on the facets of him that he wants to reveal to you and show you even about yourself. You miss out on all that through unbelief, through disobedience, through sin. You can just back it all the way up. He wants all.